All right, praise the Lord, everybody. We're going to get into this. As I said at, uh, at the end of uh, Natalie's message today, she ended up kind of going into my business. I mean, it's not my business. It's the Bible, so it belongs to all of us. But it's good to know when we're kind of all in the same area. It kind of explains maybe this is what we need to hear when you're on one accord like that. I was teaching from David's um, repentance psalm in 32 earlier, and I didn't get to this verse, but this verse really stuck me, especially one phrase that, that he uh, mentions. But we're going to read from Psalms, eight, uh, Psalms 32, and I'm going to deal mostly with ver two verses, 8 and 9, for most of the lesson. And I'll get into, a, I'll probably do a shotgun reading of a few scriptures toward the middle. But basically, I'm just going to deal with those two, and particularly one phrase that he uses there. In the middle of David repenting, uh, the, the song that he writes kind of switches a person from himself to God kind of answering him. Uh, he deals with uh, his transgressions when he was hiding in the case of Bathsheba, how he fell into adultery with her. And it's interesting because when it comes to sin and repentance, like David's prayer of repentance is like one of the most quoted prayers of repentance out there. And it's amazing because the Bible tells us that devil's David's only fault in life. He said David walked perfect before the Lord all of his life except with the case of Bathsheba. Now, it was a big fall because not only did he sleep with a man's wife, but he had the man killed, the pregnancy and the loss of the baby. And it was a whole lot of mess. But uh, for the Bible to only chide him for that area of his life, uh, was a blessing. He truly was a man after God's own heart, the Bible tells us. And it wasn't his perfectness that he landed that title as a man after God's own heart, but it was his willingness to accept the penalty for his sin and to come clean with God. Uh, although he needed a little prompting from the prophet because he got, he tried to hide from his sin for a while. And he, he says that here in verses one through seven, he deals with that period of time when he was running ducking and dodging, trying to confess his sin. But in verse number 8, well, in 7, after he says, Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And then the song switches to God's point of view in 8 and 9, where God answers back and he says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit or bridle, lest they come near unto thee. And the New King James Version says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And here's the phrase I really want to deal with. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And I want to talk about following God's will. We need to take note as to how God interacts with us as his children, servants, and disciples. He clearly does not believe in forceful leadership. He leads us gently and with a small, still, quiet voice. He doesn't drive us. Therefore, any role of leadership that we exemplify with a heavy hand 
is clearly opposed to the nature of the God we serve. With regard to church leadership, the Bible tells us that a bishop must not lead by restraint, but willingly. And in line with God's gentle leadership, they aren't to lord over God's heritage. So if God doesn't drive us, then why should we drive the people that are under us? With regard to parenting, the Bible tells us to discipline out of love and instructs us not to be so harsh on our children so as to discourage them. He talks to the fathers, tell them, don't be so harsh on your children because they'll be discouraged in the process if you come down too hard on them and always fussing about every little tiny thing. With regard to masters, because in this day they had masters, they are told to be fair and just in dealing with their servants. Not like the, the slavery that our ancestors were under. Uh, a lot of that stuff was not neither fair nor just. They were very hard. But in biblical times, a servant really was an extension of your own family. You took that person in and you were responsible for that person. If they bore children, those children were extensions of your own household. You loved them because they contributed to your well-being. Uh, but uh, in the evil days of slavery in this country, uh, we found that not to be the case. Uh, you, you had the extreme whippings and killings and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I want to read a little bit from one of the commentaries here. I believe this is all from the um, Biblical Illustrator commentary. When David gazed at Bathsheba, lusted after her, and then committed adultery, and when he plotted to kill her husband, David saw himself acting as a free man. In David's eyes, he was just running free. You know, I'm king. I want this woman. I'm going to take her. Whatever David wanted, he, as a king, he went and took it. If he wanted another country or another nation, he went and took the nation because he had the army and, and the force and the power to take it. But God saw David acting as a brutal beast. He was acting like an animal. And the only way to control animals is to break them and harness them. But God didn't want to do that to his beloved servant David. Instead, he would teach him his word and keep his eye upon him, surrounding him with mercy. The Bible tells us that it is the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Sometimes when we, we know a person is wrong, they've wronged us, a lot of times our prayer is, Lord, get them. Don't give them no sleep. Don't give them no rest. Uh, let everything, if the hand goes to, let it fail. Let it turn the powder in their hand. You know, curse their children. All this kind of stuff. That's how we want to see God deal with our enemies. But the Bible says that it's the goodness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. And if you want to really get to your enemy, he said, feed them. Clothe them. Give them the stuff they need because in doing this, this is how you heap hot coals upon their head. We would think, well, can't I just go get some hot coals? If that's the purpose, I could just go get some hot coals, put it on there myself. He said, no, God does things a little bit different. Because remember that when he came and died on the cross, that was a time when we were actually called enemies of the cross. He didn't come for folk that were willingly accepting him. He didn't come for people that were saying, oh, Lord, save me. I'm ready for your deliverance. He came for people that, that did not like him. They didn't like his laws. They didn't like his, his well, they thought his laws were too strict. And, and uh, it wasn't enough for them. But sometimes in their um, thinking, 
his laws weren't enough. So we're going to add some more laws because, you know, God's missing in some areas. So let me fix his thing and let me add some more areas. And that's how we uh, get 10 commandments to turn into 600 and I think 23, I think was the final number by the time he came and chastised the Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. But it is manifest that the eye of God can guide none but those who are diligently observing the lightest indications of his will. People have to be very in tune with God because of the, because of the fact that he doesn't operate as we do. He says, the way you think and the way I think are totally opposed as far as the east is from the west. Uh, we don't think alike. We don't handle situations alike. So you need to really take on my mind in order to learn how to handle some things because uh, he is the God of wisdom. I like reading the Proverbs, especially uh, Proverbs, especially one through uh, eight. I think six, six, seven, and eight deal with wisdom. And wisdom is something that you got to ask for God for. It did God's heart great joy when Solomon asked. He asked Solomon, I'll give you anything in the world. Whatever you want, just ask for it. He said, I want wisdom and to learn how to judge between your people. Most of us would have been like, Lord, I want a house on a hill and I want, I want this car. And Lord, can't you get, fill my, my closet up with some shoes and some clothes and, you know, make it easy for me. Allow me to kick back and enjoy the rest of my life and let me get off this crazy job with these crazy people. But Solomon said, I want wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, God gave him everything he is. And, and according to the Bible, there was no man more rich than Solomon. But with the eye of God, he says that you have to be so in tune with God and so close to him and watch him closely that you'll be able to catch where he's leading and guiding you. And the following verse contains a warning to them who are of an opposite disposition, who will yield only to harsh measures and severe discipline. Some people will not respond to God unless the hammer's being dropped. Some children will not respond to their parent. Unless the parent is, is screaming and nearly uh, choking them. You have some very stubborn people in our society. And that's really ingrained in the spirit. But God is looking for children that will please him and say, Lord, wherever you lead, wherever you guide me, I'm trying to watch you close to know what will please you. I'm listening to the subtle hints. What do you like? What do you want? What's important to you? Like she taught this morning, uh, the things that we've been thinking are important, God says, is as tingling symbols. It's just noise. Because if you lack the things that I care about, then you're really not under my leadership. So he says, I will guide thee with mine eye. Now this supposes great attentiveness on the part of those who are led. I'm going to deal with the word led a little bit later. Great desire to know the will of their guide. See an affectionate child. Think about the child. He will gather his father's will, not merely from his actual words, but from the looks, the tones, the gestures. And when he cannot do much more than guess what that will is, he will act on what is likely rather than excuse himself by the want of more distinct information. See, sometimes we want God to really speak to us audibly. Lord, speak to me like he spoke to Moses. We don't want the small, still voice. Because in our lives, most of us have asked the question a thousand times. 
What's your will for me? Where do you want me to go? Where should I be? What decision should I make? Should I go left? Should I go right? Should I stand still? Should I speak? Should I hush? So with a child, a child can know, now that look in daddy's eyes, that ain't good. Or they could look at their daddy and say, oh, that got daddy's heart. When I said that to him, I could see in his face, he liked that kind of affection toward him. <clears throat> now, this is the, the dispos uh, disposition which God here approves. The party whom he would guide with his eye must be one who will search out the slightest hints, the briefest intimations, and will not demand in every case express categorical instructions. That means I want it written out. I want you to tell me which day. I want you to tell me which color. <laughs> Bible's telling us that God is subtle. Which, in our case, tells us that you got to trust your freedom a little bit more in God. Some have taken away so much freedom, they tell you, don't move until God expressly speaks. But the scripture's telling us that's not really how God deals. Now, we have scriptures that tell us where the lines are. You can't go past it, a certain line. You can't do that. This is permissible. This is not. The areas that are not permissible, you have a conscience to tell you that will either excuse you or accuse you. That will allow you to go that. Paul deals with the weak saints and the strong saints. We've reversed the roles of the weak saints because we think the weak saints are the ones that have the freedoms. But Paul said the weak saints are the ones with all the restrictions, with all the thou shall nots. And he tells them, y'all shouldn't be judging each other like that. Just because he has a freedom that you don't have and it doesn't bother your conscience, that doesn't mean that it's a sin for him. It's a sin for you. The Bible seems to be largely constructed on the principle that God would guide his church with his eye. Truths being often intimated rather than alarmed. Left to be discerned by the attention and not exposed to every cursory observer. So the idea conveyed would be one most familiar with David as an Eastern monarch. As a king, David knew, I could sit on my throne and look over and my servants move. Some in here that are parents can look at their kid and that kid knows, straighten up. Some people know to go somewhere with a look. A clear direction. He, you don't have to get up and say, I want you to go over there and handle what's going on. There's power in the eyes. So as he sat in state, he was surrounded by a number of servants eager to do his bidding. Their eyes were constantly fixed on him, and when he wanted this or the other service done, there was scarcely need for him to speak. Each knew his post. The eye of each servant is dutifully fixed on his Lord. And at a nod or a sign, a turn of the eye, he flew to do the required service. This is where God tells us, I will lead you with my eye. So we got to start asking God, where are you looking? Because whatever you're looking at, you're leading me there. So I need to know where you're looking. Guidance with the eye is guidance by the slightest signs and indications. Signs were all that... The servant had to act upon who was guided by the eye of his Lord. And since God has told us that he will guide us by his eye, 
by signs which will require intelligence and thought on our part to interpret, God now treats us as men. We are no longer to be led by the hand. The law of Moses was a leading by the hand. It was forceful. It was restrictive. It was very uh, self-encompassing. There were very few things that you could do without going against some law. Because if you went against one law, you were guilty of all of them. Now, some of us have lost that also in this day. Well, you know, oh, that's just that little sin. But in, in the law of Moses, if you lie, you might as well have fornicated or murdered somebody. He saw it all the same. But when we pray for guidance and wait in vain for an answer to our prayers, have we always remembered this? We pray that the way may be made quite plain, hedged up as it were, so that there can be no room for doubt for us. We mean, in other words, that without the care and responsibility of choice, we should, like, we should like the road to be made as clear to us as it is to be the horse by the man who is riding him. You're saying, Lord, I'm not responsible enough to interpret your actions in my life. I need you to keep your reins on me, turn me left, turn me right, tell me when to stop. Who wants that kind of relationship for their kid? Who wants to send your kid to college and you got to be calling every day, well, did you do this? Did you do that? You shouldn't do this. Please don't do that. They should know your, your desire for them that, yeah, mom and daddy wouldn't be pleased with this. He wants to be able to, you know, give you some freedom. He takes us into the pasture and opens it up. The gate may be narrow once you're going in, but once it's out there, it's free range. Until the shepherd goes and collects them at the rapture, he's given us some freedom to move about the earth, doing his will, making disciples, but he expects us to know what his will is for our personal lives. This is why the Bible tells us it's not wise that we judge one another by ourselves. Peter was so concerned about John that the Lord had to rebuke him and say, John's none of your business. I don't deal with John the way I deal with you. I don't deal with Paul the way I deal with Peter. Peter and Paul got into disputes. Paul said, I rebuked him openly because he was wrong. Because God dealt with them differently. They had different ministries to different people. Paul used his ministry in different ways. He said, I become all things to all people that I might save some. He had that when in Rome, do what the Romans do kind of mentality. Not to the point of sin. If I go and, and this group is offended by what I do, I'm not going to do that. Because I really want to show them Christ. That's my ultimate goal is to show them Christ. And if I become a stumbling block because my, I'm so caught up into my own ego that it doesn't give them the opportunity to see Christ, then I just failed. That's that love she was talking about. Because love has to adjust itself in order to reach some. So the road sometimes is not going to be crystal clear. He's not going to give you all the details. And because this is not done for us, we say that God doesn't hear my prayer. We say, Lord, I prayed for your will. And I still don't have heard the answer. I don't know what to do. Maybe in that particular case, if he hasn't answered, he's saying, I trust you to do the right thing. I trust you that, that you have my will in mind. I'll give you some freedom to do it. See, this kind of message gets dangerous to people because they get, I mean, the idea of freedom 
He leads us with his eye. He doesn't hold us with reins. He doesn't bridle us. So the contrast, the way which all men should be controlled, because you, 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 you do need some control. In fact, the, the point of the whole Christian life is self-control. It all comes down to so all the epistles and all the things that Paul and Peter and John and, and Timothy, all of them wrote about. It really was self-control. Learn how to control yourself amongst each other. But he says, by the eye of God. Number one, that means intelligently. So he's going to deal with our intellect, first of all, because when he's looking, we should know him enough to interpret what he's doing. Remember, one brother asked the bishop because uh, it was Bishop Young. Bishop Young came to Old Peace a long time ago. And I remember he, uh, after he preached, he did a prayer line. And this was my first time, like, really seeing a prayer line like this. And I think that was his, only his first or second time preaching at our church. He didn't know nobody there. But, you know, the saints know each other. And God used that man so we actually didn't get break. We went from prayer line into night service, that service. He prayed until 6.30 p.m. into night service. But the things that he was calling out, I was afraid to get in the, in the prayer line. <laughs> because I knew he was right about the ones that I knew. I said, this man don't know nothing about us. He has a fellowship with us. I said, that got to be God. And one of the saints asked them, what is that like when you're, when you're, when you're in that zone? Because it, it lights up and it lights off. And he, he said, it's just, yeah, I can't explain it. You, you really have to go with, with the discernment that God's given you at the time. And not until years later did I even experience the inkling of, of, of that. But even in that situation, you're kind of afraid to speak. But God's urging and inspiring you to speak something to somebody. And you hold back. I could be wrong. <laughs> God's trying to lead you with his eye. That person needs what God has given in your spirit to tell that person. And if you hold it back, you just disobeyed God's gentle leading. You, we, we want him to speak in the thunder. And he just gives you that small little feeling on the inside and you're like, ooh. Because you, you read the Old Testament, you say, man, when they prophesied and it didn't come to pass, they got stoned to death. I, I, I'm going to be in trouble with God if this ain't right. And there were some times I, I just shut up. Other times I, I, I had to learn, just speak it. If it's right, it'll come to pass. And people come back and say, thank you so much. I really needed that word. I shared a dream with a, with a, with a sister that I had about her a long time ago. And, and the dream was right on. She was contemplating whether she was going to move on something or not. But my dream had already confirmed she was successful at what she was thinking about already. So we must use our intellect in reading God. It must be readily at any moment's time. You have testimony of people of God waking them up three, four in the morning, telling them to do something, call somebody, do something, read this or write that. And it must be constantly. We must always be seeking God's face. It can't be just during your prayer time. Throughout the day, you've really got to be searching God because 
there's so many people that cross our paths knowingly and unknowingly throughout the day. It could be the lady at the grocery store checkout. You don't know. It could be it could be the the guy, uh, the police officer you you happen to cross paths with. And then there's the way in which some men must be controlled, and that is as a brute, stubborn beast. And their three points, instead of uh, intellectually, readily, and constantly, theirs is irrationally, fractiously, and dangerously. Their way of governing themselves is irrational because they lack understanding of right and wrong. Unless a horse has a bit and a bridle, that horse don't know what to do. And think of of what it takes for a horse to be trained to even uh, follow the leading of the bit and the bridle. They got to attach that horse to a rail that goes around in circles in order to train them. Because when they first get on, on that, I don't know what it's called. When they first get on that thing, they want to go straight, but the thing yanks their head. So they have to learn, okay, I got to go left this way. And then they switch the side of the bridle, and he tries to walk straight and get yanked. Okay, I got to go right. So he learns when the bit is pulled right, I go right. When it's pulled left, I go left. God doesn't deal with us that way. He doesn't put hooks in our mouths and have us go in circles to train us. He woos us with love, still small voices, through his word, by his spirit. The second is that they are fractious, whose mouth must be held in. They have to muzzle a mule and a horse, or they'll bite at you. They're also quarrelsome. And some have seen videos of the zoo. You may have even seen it in person. We like to go to the zoo Pretty animals, black and white zebras, all nice and big and, you know, but they're caged. They're caged for a reason. (laughs) Big old lion sitting back there, man. There's a big moat between you and that lion. There's a reason they put a moat and a big glass window. Because if you got in there with that lion, guess what? That lion don't look as tame as, as, you, as he looks in that display. You got some folk that realize this. They, they get up to an animal at the zoo and get too close, stick their head over the fence, and find out, man, that's not the nice little zebra I thought he was. They're also dangerous. Said, lest they come near thee. Horses and mules must be given boundaries by their master or rider. They can't be allowed near anyone because of the danger they possess in their brute force if spooked or they perceive a threat. I saw a video on YouTube a few weeks ago of a young girl who went and started punching a horse. That horse perceived that as a threat. Not a threat because of the size, but that it was in his nature. And he picked the girl up by the hair with his mouth, slung her up in the air and tossed her. This is how people that don't know God act. You, we, we got people that are short-tempered. They don't know how to deal with people. They talk to you like you a dog. You, you're supposed to be easily entreated and full of love. Season your words with grace. Soft answer turns away wrath. Quarrelsome. And they're dangerous because they have the power to kill. 
I saw a, a video of another lady went behind a horse. Didn't bother the horse, but went behind the horse. And the horse can, they sense things. Now, you shouldn't be in that area. You shouldn't be in my space. I'm going to kick you. That's how some of us are sometimes. We don't want nobody in our space. We do everything we can to keep you out. God's trying to use us to minister to others, but, but we're so caught up into our own will. And, Lord, I just want to be a recluse. I don't, I don't want to. The body of Christ is a body. We, we, we can't just be all to ourselves. People not led with willing hearts by God have proven to be the most dangerous. And if God doesn't rein them in, they will ruin the world. We know some people like that. Everybody knows somebody. that If you didn't really have boundaries, if God let you do all that was in your heart to do, you would tear some stuff up. Sometimes we wonder why God gave him as much freedom as he did. So the phrase willing, I'm going to just read through some scriptures and uh, you can write them down. Exodus 35 and 5. From what you have, take an offering from the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. Exodus 35 and 21 through 23. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, uh, brooches and earrings, rings and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Verse 29 of Exodus 35. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. So when God decided that I want a tabernacle with man and he wanted to build the first tabernacle in the wilderness, this is how he did it. He did it, he did it with those, not by constraint. He didn't say make this a law that everybody had to do this, that, the other. Those that are willing, they're a part of this. Those that are not willing, don't involve them. Solomon did the same thing. First Chronicles 28 and 9. And you, my son Solomon, this is the, sec this is the uh, first temple of Solomon. You, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. 28, uh, verse 21 of the same chapter, 1 Chronicles 28. The divisions of the priests and the Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God, and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. The officials and all the people will obey your every command. So now it took the people who were willing, number one, to give up their stuff for the building of the temple and in Exodus, the tabernacle. Number two, it was up to the free will of the people to start building it. They weren't getting paid for this. It was not a job. They didn't go to Moses and say, well, what's, you know, that, what's my fee, doc? You know, because, you know, I, I got to support my family. 
He had to tell them, this is for your communion with God. 29 and 5 of 1 Chronicles. For the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen, now who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Willingness. Isaiah sums it up, and Isaiah 1 and 19 says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So every man really in life, you got two choices. You could be willing and be blessed, or you could rebel and your days are going to be hard. Now, there's a problem here because there's so many Proverbs and Psalms that says, I really got discouraged when I looked at the wicked and saw how they prospered. Now, I, I thought that if you know went the wicked way, your days were going to be hard. Now we got to look and see, what does God see as prosperous? <laughs> see, our definitions then got messed up. We think they're prospering. David, uh, the psalmist, they said, man, they're prospering. They're killing me. They're trying to kill me. They're coming after me. They want to take everything I got. Why are they prospering? God says they're not because the scriptures already told us what he sees it as. See, that's because we're so concerned about what we can see. We don't think about the inner joy, the peace that comes from God. The true blessing from God, that, that even if I lose my job, I still have communion with God. I could talk to him. I can have peace with him. I, I, I'm not pulling my hair out because I know that according to his word, he's going to provide everything I have need of. I, I'm not like the man who, who will uh, end up, you know, uh, on drugs. I don't have to turn to drugs because I have God that will bring me out of this thing. And I, I have to see myself coming out of it. I can't see myself always where I am. I've got to look. Which direction are you looking in that? I got to look at God's eyes, and God's eyes are kind of in a worship mode because he sees me already at the end. Brought out, delivered, set free, shackles broken. But I can only see right now. This thing about being in the valley, all you can see is mountains. But for God, all he can see that on the other side of that mountain range is pure bliss. We can't see it. So we got to look up to him and say, oh, Lord, which way are you looking? Abraham had to say, where should I go? What do you want me to do? Just leave your father's house and go. Well, where, where should I go? Well, I mean, what's the name of the place? Well, I mean, wh wh what is it called? Just go. I'll show you when you get there. What? <laughs> Can you imagine a man walking up to any woman on the street? Will you marry me? I got something good for you. I got, I got a life for you that, that will knock your socks off. You crazy. Perfect stranger. That's how Abraham had to feel. Because his father was, was the priest of, of idolatry. He grew up in idolatry. I mean, Abraham, no doubt, probably knew how to mold the, the idols that they worshipped. He probably sat and watched his father and, and was taught how to commit idolatry. And then for this God to come and say, I want you to leave all of this and, and show me. Because the gods that, that they made, the Bible says, 
I can make this God and shape him and dress him and set him up and then tell him to do whatever I want him to do. That's what idol worship is. I overlay it with gold and set it up and say, oh, this is the God of the sun. This is the God that brings me rain. This is the God that brings my crops every year. I set it up that way. When God says, I'm the one that causes it to rain or not to rain, and I'm the one that causes it to grow. So Isaiah says, you got to be willing and obedient. God has always used the willing heart to do the most amazing things. He tends not to use the person that he's got to prod and beg. Both temples were built on willingness. The first tent was built on willingness. The first temple of Solomon was built on willingness. The second temple was built on willingness. I didn't even get to that scripture, but you, you, you can read it. When Nehemiah and them built the temple, the second temple, it was built the same way the first two were. Now, the Bible says that we are the temple of God. Now, if those three temples are going to fall in line with the way God acts, then don't you think that this temple is going to be willing to? God's not going to come to you and make you obey the gospel. He's not going to make you obey his command to love. You have a right. I set before you this day right and wrong, good and evil, light and dark. Choose ye this day who you will serve. It's up to you. Once you choose it, you deal with the consequences of each side. So in Luke 22 and 41, he says, He walked away, perhaps a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed this prayer. Here's the willingness of the, of the uh, spiritual tabernacle being built. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of horror from me, but I want your will, not mine. The Bible says about Jesus that he always did the things that pleased his father. Not sometimes. Always. And even the father, when he got baptized, he spoke out and said, this is my beloved son. And he didn't say with whom I'm well pleased. He said in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I, I can live in this because this servant's willing. He'll do what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, how I want him to do it. He don't have to keep asking me questions over and over again. Now, now this part, he did ask him twice. But he said, not my will, but your will be done. So what is God's will? This is probably the most popular question that people ask God in one's life. In fact, this question is probably asked several times over because we tend to ask it no matter what we go through. And that's a good thing. But I think the problem lies, and, and so many of us have struggled with this, and we struggle with scriptures of, you know, uh, all things work together for the good to them that love God. Because when I'm in the mess, it don't seem like these scriptures really apply to me. They sound good. They appear to be, oh, very promising. And, man, my future is bright. But when I'm in it, when my enemies are really wearing me out from my perspective, I really don't see the good. So there's some other questions that we usually ask. With all the promises in the Bible that God will lead and guide us, why do we often feel like we're wandering? Anybody ever felt like in a, in a certain part of their life, I'm just, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know where I should be. Don't know where I should go. I need the mind of God. Another question. With the promise of special peace and joy that passes all understanding, why do we often feel like our world is so chaotic? Walls are closing in. Stress starts to set in. 
anxiety starts to take over. I didn't got laid off, and my rent's due. My rent doesn't coincide with the job that I'm working on. They don't talk to each other. The electric bill, they, they don't call the job and say, well, you know, are they going to be working next month? It would be nice if they did and say, you know what, you know, they're going to be laid off for a while if you could give them a little break, you know, for a few months till they get back on their feet. You know, we would, we would you know, really love if life worked that way, right? <laughs> I remember getting laid off uh, from the banks. I, want, I wanted to take any job I could. Young, want, want to start a family, freshly married, got a wife, want to take care of her as best I can. Lord, what, what am I going to do? Some are presented with kind of shady options. Well, you know you can make a quick buck this way. I've seen them. I've seen some in the church. Supposed to be seasoned saints. Get into some shady dealings. Illegal activity. Involve the other saints. Getting folks audited and carrying on by the IRS. While you go on and, and made your money off of the deal. You're supposed to be... My brother, we can't go with the quick route. We got to go with the God route. Sometimes the God route, she said, is slow. He's not in a hurry. He created time. He lives in eternity. He knows where we're going to end up at. So if indeed we have the mind of Christ, why am I so confused? Because our mental state and the things that we think, because remember now, God doesn't judge us by the, the, most of the words we say. He's really judging the intent of our heart. He knows when you say, I'm confused, when the Bible says you have the mind of Christ. These are just questions, some of which I don't have answers for because I found myself in the same quandary throughout life. So we sometimes have a preconceived notion of how God is supposed to operate and communicate with us. We look at Elijah. Elijah expected God to be in what he considered to be the most grandiose display of power. Lord, when you act, I want you to act big. You know, Hollywood trailer style. I want explosions. Blow some stuff up. I want a sign in the skies, in the heavens. I'm like, y'all, I mean, Lord, if that's your will, then show me a shooting star or something. <laughs> I just need a little confirmation. How much time have we lost with waiting for confirmations? What scriptures do we have to say you should wait for confirmation? The Bible says, when I look a certain way, tell you to move. You should know me well enough to know I'm not going to send you in a bad way. And you should know that if you're moving and you're and your purpose, your heart is right before me, you should trust me to protect you even if it's not exactly what I said. God will protect us when we make the wrong decisions. I've been protected making the wrong decisions. That wasn't the right move. But because you trusted me and were seeking my will, I'm going to fix this, work this thing out for you. Elijah expected God to be in the hurricane. The Bible says... Hide yourself in this cleft. A lot of people believe it's the same cleft that he put Moses in when he showed Moses his backside. And the funny thing about that with Moses is that he showed him his backside because it's kind of metaphorical in, in the fact that I'm only going to show you what's behind me. I'm going to show you, Moses, 
what I've already done. This is how Moses was able to write the creation account. But I'm not going to show you where I'm going. I'm not showing you Calvary yet. I'll show you Adam and I'll show you I'll show you the types and the shadows of what I'm going to do. But you can't see my face. You can't see which way I'm going. But I'll show you my backside. And that that will be enough to keep you glowing to where the people can't even look at you. Sometimes it, all you need is God's history. If you don't know the future, all you got to do is look at the history and know this is enough for me to get over to the other side. So he tells Elijah, I want you to get in this cleft and I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to come to you. And when Elijah heard the hurricane, he said, oh, it must be God. Because that's, that's a big storm. That wind is whipping up. Man, that's powerful. My God is powerful. And the Bible said God wasn't in the hurricane. Then the mountain started shaking and rumbling and, and stuff started falling. He said, oh, I know, I know that got to be God because my God, you know, he knows how to shake things up. He created the earth. The Bible says God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire erupted. Big, huge fire. We, we've seen how it could take weeks to put a fire out in California. Imagine a, a desert fire out there on Mount Horeb. But the Bible said God wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the hurricane. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in it. And then the Bible said there was a still, small voice. And the Bible said, now that's God. Most of us would have been like, come on now. My God is powerful. But how much power do you think is in God's whisper to you? How much power do you think is in God's eye when he goes, he gives you his little nod of approval. We want to be stood up and, and, and displayed on, on the prize. You know, the, the, you got first place for best saint of the year. Let me put your blue ribbon on and let me do it in front of all the saints so they'll know you, you, you the one I, I set my approval on. It's not how our God operates. We would love it because, you know, we're, 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 we're kind of egotistical. We like our ego stroke. We like to be recognized. We like to be honored. That's why we came up with so many things to, you know, pump people up. And I do believe that respect should be given where respect is due. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. Naaman is another one. Filled with leprosy. He went to the prophet Elisha and told him, come on out here. I want to be healed. I've, I've, told, I've been told that if you pray for me, Oh, I could get rid of this leprosy. I got enough faith to come to you and say, come on, I need the prophet to lay hands on me. Elisha sent a servant back to Naaman and said, tell him to go dip in the Jordan seven times. Now, Naaman was an army captain. He was a general. He was a well-respected man. He said, you can't even come out and greet me personally. I'm a man that kind of, I, I demand respect from people. I know I got my issues with the leprosy and all that, but you, you got to come down and talk to me. Elijah didn't even answer him back. He said, you could sit there and argue all you want about what I should have, could have, would have done, but until you make that seventh dip, you won't be clean. You can fuss, you can fight, you can argue, you can cuss me out, you could do whatever you want to do, but until you're obedient, willing and obedient to the word of the prophet by 
the direction from God. And then he said, well, I can't just go there because there's some things that you got to do as a prophet, you know. Because as a preacher, you just can't pray for me and expect it to be done. I mean, I got to go through the whole, you know, prayer line thing. I got to get in the line and, and you know, I got to feel the quickening. And you got to come lay hands on me. And you got to do some great swe- This is what Naaman told the prophet. You need to come speak great swelling words over me and talk, and, and talk, you know, in the King James Version of the Bible. We expect that. That if, you know, if, if I don't fall out and roll around, I didn't get my head. You don't, need, you don't even need to touch the person. The prayer of faith can heal the sick. We got some messed up ideas. And because of that, it hinders us really from, from receiving what God has for us because we're waiting for something big and grandiose and extra powerful when, when the power really is in what, whatever God decides to do. That is the most powerful choice that we have in life. So he said, come on, you're a good Pentecostal preacher. Come lay hands on me. Come pour some oil out. So our accountability to God does not include us dictating how God leads us. Our accountability is to search God with all of our hearts and to depend so heavily upon him that it keeps us always in a position of seeking him. So in our disposition, I'm sorry, in our dispensation, God chooses to guide us, number one, by his word. He's given us scripture. He's given us instruction. Number two, he leads and guides us by his spirit. Now, this will include the ministry of the spirit and all of the gifts of the spirit that come under that as well. And this covers the, the, the uh, gifts as well as the fivefold ministry because it, the, it is the Holy Ghost that enables us to operate in those offices and under those gifts. And number three, he chooses to guide us by the intimation, intimations of his eyes. So by subtle events and a small voice, a sincere Christian may take the events of life as signs from the eye of God, but must do so with great care before man is justified in taking any event or occurrence as a sign from God. He must be sure of three things before you move. Number one, that you originally asked God for guidance. Unless you ask, you shouldn't expect to receive. Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be open. So you got to, number one, make sure you ask God for guidance. And it could be in anything. Some people think that people are trying to be super spiritual because they ask God all kind of stuff. Now, if that works for them, then we shouldn't judge them on that. But sometimes we, we start judging one another on these kind of things. Oh, you super spiritual. We got to watch how we judge one another. Number two, we have that he has used, that you have used your own intelligence and common sense as far as it will go or take you. Don't leave out the intellect. God created the intellect for a reason. He put wisdom in us to know certain things. That if you come to a choice in your life, number one, you seek God, and then you do everything that you can that you know is good with the woman with the issue of blood. We always say, see, she spent all that money on the doctors and all she needed was Jesus. Well, what would you do? The Bible tells us that every, a man will give everything for his life. He'll spend all that he has, give everything that he possesses because he wants to live. That wasn't a bad thing. And Jesus didn't chide her for that. 
He simply said, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Go, go your way. So we, we, we got to use the resources that we already have. And number three, that he still needs guidance and that he is not merely looking for what he may persuade his conscience is a sign in order that he may escape from some clear command of duty. In other words, you can't trick your conscience into saying, oh, okay, I, I can go this way. And you know good and well that that way is not permissible for you. There's a scripture that I found. I don't even know what verse it is because I was looking up the scriptures on willing. And in my search, the, the, the term uh, will worship came in, came up. And it's actually in the King James Version. It's, it's will-worship. I was like, that's an interesting phrase because I don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. And he was talking about those people who came into the church and they made up their own rules to live by and God called it will worship. You're, you're really worshiping your own will and trying to replace it with mine. You really have no allegiance to me. You, you, you created your own will and that's what you want to serve. So we can't do that. So number one, we have to ask for guidance. Number two, we have to use the knowledge and the wisdom that we have within us. And we got to use it up to the best of our ability. And then number three, after all that is filled, seek some more guidance from God. This is the, the pattern that he gives to David. So let's get John 15 and 15. And I'm going to read it from the message translation. He says, I'm no longer calling you servants because servants don't understand what their master is thinking and planning. No, I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from the Father. Yes, we serve Christ in our life, with our lives and with our worship. But he says, I'm taking you a little bit beyond a servant because a servant, he works in your house. He knows the people in your house. But the intimate details that go on behind closed doors when you call the wife in and say and close the door, that's none of the servant's business. But the servant that, that now elevates, I mean, the master that elevates his servant from servant to friend, he leaves the door open. Says, oh, I, I know I know uh, Rick in there. He, he all right. He's my friend. He wouldn't take the information that I'm divulging and misuse it. He wouldn't take it and use it against me. Everything that the Father gives to me, I don't mind him hearing because he's my friend. This is how God sees us. So the will for your life, God has shown to Jesus, and he is the mediator between God and man, between man and God, and he's our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and he forever maketh intercession for us, that he's before God's throne on our behalf. We're his friend. Whatever he hears, he will tell us and say, you know what? This is what God is thinking. A lot of times, uh, parents go into the room and they never let the kids know what's going on because that's grown-up stuff. But with, with, when it comes to the father and the son, he comes down to the children of, of the kingdom and says, everything that I got, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you knowledge. I'm going to give you wisdom. And here's how he lays it out. In James 1, he says in verse number 2, Dear brothers, is your life full of difficulties and temptations? Then be happy. For when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. <laughs> so let it grow and don't try to squirm out of your problems. Stay right there. Because God's eye hasn't released you yet. His eye is on you. 
His eyes on your situation. His eyes on your enemies. His eyes on the on the devil. He sees it all at once. You don't think he saw them in the fiery furnace? Some people think that he got in there with them, but he was there when they got there. That's why the flames never got to him. He was already in there and had changed the nature of flames and fire. Said their clothes weren't even smoky. The ones that were taking the boys to the furnace died when they got into close proximity of the fire because it was seven times hotter. They can die by approaching the fire, but I can't even smell like smoke in the fire. That's how much they trusted God. They didn't go kicking and screaming. They went, as I word, willingly. Because I know that if my God doesn't deliver me, O king, I know he's able. And the power of his ability is enough for me to die for his cause. Some of us probably without even the flames touching us, we would probably think at some point this is going to get hot. <laughs> so let me kind of run, try to jump out the pit. But it says they started just dancing. Stay there. Give, give yourself chance to grow. Get some patience. Because the Bible says, in your patience, you possess your soul. You have control of your own soul when you have patience. If you're impatient, your soul is chaotic. You're easily upset. Your joy leaves very quickly. For when your patience is finally in full bloom, then you will be ready for anything. Strong in character, full and complete. If you want to know what God wants you to do, here's a thought, ask him. <laughs> and he will gladly tell you. Isn't that what Jesus just said? I, I, you're not my servants anymore. You're my friends. I'll tell you what the deal is. For he is always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. That goes back to my series of questions. Lord, if you said I got so much wisdom, why do I feel so dumb right now? If I'm supposed to have joy unspeakable, full of glory, why, why do I feel so sad because of what I'm going through? If you promise to bring me out, why do I have so much anxiety that I'm going to die in the state that I'm in without ever being delivered? He'll give you the wisdom and he will not resent it. But when you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you, for a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and every decision you then make will be uncertain. As you turn first this way, then that, because you're really unsure. A person that has directions and knows where they're going, they will go that way and not even think twice about it. Sometimes my wife will call me. And she said, babe, they closed the freeway, and I'm at this exit. Which way should I go? I say, well, let me, I open up my map. I say, well, if you turn left, there'll be a street, and you, you go about a quarter mile that way. Well, I just don't think I should turn that way. I just feel that I should turn right. I said, well, try it and let me know how it works. She said, I can't stand you. Because I, I'm looking at the map. I'm looking at Google Maps who has sent their cars all around the world with them little twirling cameras on top 
who not only have the streets, but they, they have, know how many number of lanes are on the street. When they give you directions and you turning right, they, they'll tell you if there's two turning lanes or one turning lane. They'll light them up for you. But you're not going to believe that. You just got a gut feeling that I don't know what I'm talking about with the book in my hand. That's how a double-minded man is going to be. I'm not calling you double-minded. <laughs> You're not double-minded. Lovely Christian of God. <laughs> but I'm saying the double-guessing of instruction is what we do with God. He says, so... There's one way to deal with the situations that you're in. You could go in it believing that God has your back, stay in it, and get good patience from it. Or you could say, well, God told me to go this way, that way, maybe that way. That's why you really want the patience, because you want to be able to breathe in. Lord, how are you working through? How are you working this thing out for me? Let me sit and savor this relationship. Although it may be short, let me garner what I need to get from this person or let them garner what they need to get from me and let me not be so quick to try to move on in life. Let me have some patience. We got to watch God's subtleness. So he says, but the other way is every decision you make will be uncertain as you turn first this way and then that. If you don't ask with faith, don't expect the Lord to give you any solid answer. Because that's the, way, that's the way a person feels when you ask them a question and they know they gave you the right answer and you kind of second-guess their answer. The person's offended then. What? And all, I think all of us have been, been through this with, with our kids as they're learning because as they're learning, they know what, what, what is right. And, and this is funny because... In, in class, they'll say, my teacher showed me how to do it this way. And at home, you, you, you got a way you learn. Because you know the way we did math 25 years ago ain't the way some of the kids do math now. I'm like, well, how you get to that answer? But, and they'll tell you, or oh, you're wrong, Dad. They told me to do it this way. And you got to sit and, and be patient. Sit there and let them do it. That's what God does to us. Lord, you're wrong. I, I'm going to go and do it this way. Okay. I'll be right here when you're ready. But that's his grace, because he could easily walk away and say, well, I'm done with you. So then we must be led. I looked up the word led just in the New Testament. I didn't want to deal with the Old Testament, because I really wanted to deal with the spiritual aspect of things as far as the church is concerned. And for each of the Gospels, the word led is mentioned in each of them roughly because some gospel writers skip for certain verses or, or instances, but an average of about six or seven times in the gospels. The first time it's mentioned is when the Bible says that Jesus was led of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then the other six, five or six times after that, it deals with all of the times that they led Jesus to the cross. So for the one time that Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, there are at least seven other times that he was led by his enemies of the cross. In fact, the Bible said that he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. But the leading that took Jesus to the cross was the kind, gentle leadership of God, not the brute force with which the soldiers handled him. 
They thought they were leading him to the cross. But he was already led to the cross in the, remember the first scripture I read, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. He was led then to the cross. His blood was shed then in Gethsemane. For the Bible tells us, remember, Jesus said, no man takes my life. If you really want to get technical, the Old Testament says that the life of the spirit is in the blood. So he can really have said, no, you can't take my blood. I'm going to willingly give my blood. When did he willingly give his blood? When he submitted to the Father's will and, and mourned. In Gethsemane, the Bible says he sweated blood. The first drop of blood wasn't shed around the cross. The first drop of blood he willingly gave up in Gethsemane. No man takes my life. I'm laying this thing down. Now that I've started the flow, I'll let you finish it. He was led by the Father. And where the Father leads you, nobody else can really lead you unless the Father says, okay, they think they're leading you. Let them think they're doing something. And this is why Jesus could say, Father, forgive them because they really don't know what they're doing. They, they didn't know. I came for this. I'm manipulating this whole thing. So they were only allowed to lead him because the father had already led him. I'm done. I just wanted to deal with following God. It's because it's so uncertain and there's no like black and white rules written down for following the will of God. And I think it's because life it has so many variables. And we want things to be in a formula. We want, really want to formulize everything. And it's, this is not chiding. Uh, it's just an observation. I, I've always I had a problem coming up, you know, when you do certain things. I understand that, that you want to be able to do things and, and there be a, a consistency with, with stuff. But I think that modern-day religion has taken that need to have everything formulized and, and this is the way the order of things must be every time. We got to do a prayer in the scripture and the this and the that and this. And, and there's no, like, freedom. Like, she talked about the first-century church. The first-century church was so fluid, it ain't even funny. They, they met in houses, and they would just meet up. They would read the letters to the, to the churches from the apostles, and they would say, well, brother, tell me, how is this letter speaking to you? you, you what's your experience with God, and how is God revealing himself? We, we couldn't trust that these days. We'd be like, oh, no. I, I, I came to hear Bishop. <laughs> you know? But, but in the, the early church, and that's, everything has its place and its time, but in the early church, there was so much more freedom to hear from God. And in doing that, you hear so, like today we were talking, we heard, we heard how the message affects people in different ways because of where they're at in life. When, when God lays something out, we can rest on what he said. We don't have to add to it to try to secure it any more than it's already secure is my point. If he said it, it's going to stand. If, if he's given his word on a thing, all you got to do is sit back and trust it and believe it's going to come to pass with regard to his will keep searching keep knocking keep asking the knowledge and wisdom that he that he's given you through life use that 
Some people think that just because you use knowledge means that you're leaning to your own understanding. That, that's really not what that scripture is addressing. He's, he's saying don't discount the way that God wants you to go because sometimes he'll go around even that understanding. He'll do things a total different way like in the case of Naaman and Elijah. But I just want, wanted to encourage you guys, if you're seeking God's will in your life, pray about it, seek God's will, and share it with a brother or sister. Those that are married, it's good to talk to your husband, your spouse. What do you think about this? This is where I think God is taking me. And sometimes I, I, I kind of venture on, you know, God's will when I can kind of sense, you know, a transition coming up in my life. Because you can always, sometimes you can tell, I think God's really about to shift a, a couple of things in my life, and I need some direction. Lord, I'm open. I need to know what you're really saying to me. I need your direction. I need your guidance. And I don't want to make a mistake. And sometimes our fear of making a mistake will cause us to freeze. Sometimes he doesn't want you to freeze. He just wants you to move freely in him. And that's my prayer for everyone in here. I don't know what everybody's going through. I don't know what decisions you're, you're in the um, process of making or may, may need to make in the near future. But trust your connection with God that he will, he's got your back. He's not going to let you fall or stumble, that he will lift you up. He'll keep you in his hand. You're his. He's yours. And nothing can come between that. Mistakes won't come between that. Bad calls won't come between that. Just know that if your heart is with God, he will always He'll go and work a thing out a long way if he has to in order to get you back on track. That's the kind of God we serve. But I think that this lesson showed me in reading some of this stuff that we have to trust our freedom in Christ. That he's not so rigid with every little bitty, you know, fine print in our lives. And we've been taught that, that, you know, but, but he's saying here, I'll instruct you, you shouldn't be like a horse that needs to be told when to go left, when to go right, and let me yank you around and turn you this way and turn you that way, yank on your head and tell you to stop. You should be able to know, I sense that God is telling me this is far enough. Yeah. Amen. And that's my prayer for you guys and that, that hearing this. I'm done.